0: I'm Amy Carson, and this is The Balance, understanding nonprofit finance. In today's episode, Stephanie Arcella joins me to talk about fundraising and the current economic environment. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of The Balance. Our guest today is Stephanie Arcella. Stephanie is the co-founder of Take-Two Services and Lead Fundraising Council. Welcome, Stephanie. Thank you, Amy. Thanks so much for having me today. Thrilled to have you on. Stephanie, can you just tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do over at Take Two? Sure. I am co-founder, as
1: you said, of Take Two Services. This is a boutique consulting firm that provides fundraising services and communication services to nonprofits all over the country. What we focus on doing is just helping nonprofits of all different missions, sizes, strengthen their fundraising solutions and their communication solution. I myself have a master's in social work. So I come from the social service field, done a lot of therapy with families and individuals, done a lot of social justice work. But I always found fundraising empowering because if you can raise the money, You can strengthen the programming. You can fill gaps in programming. You can achieve your mission.
0: That is so interesting. I don't think I've ever met anybody with a social work background that goes, that went into fundraising. I like that. I have a long history of doing service
1: delivery too, which I love. But I was a young lady in my early 20s trying to do domestic violence work. And I didn't like the way that it was going. And I said, how? do you change and shape the programs that you want to do? Well, you got to learn how to raise the money. It was just this aha moment of sitting at the desk. If I could figure out how to raise money, then I can shape the program that I want to deliver.
0: So if you understand very intricately what you're asking for or why you're asking for it, I would think that's very empowering as a fundraiser.
1: That was the vision. Hopefully that's the actual service delivery, (laughs) but that was the vision of it. (laughs) I like that. Yeah,
0: I think that a strong CFO development or a strong finance and accounting partnership, I think that's actually critical. And I don't think it happens as much as it should. In your opinion, what should the role of the CFO be or the accounting team or like, how can we help you all do your jobs better?
1: Yeah. So the CFO is usually my best friend in the organization. So I completely agree with you. You know, they're my bestie. So I give them the emails that are the most honest. I ask them the most questions. We have a deep partnership. And so, what that means is, first of all, I want the CFO to get the organization to do the hard work of getting the organization to be financially healthy. That means telling everybody, no, we can't do this, telling everybody, no, we can't expand there. No, I don't want you to have an event. You can't deliver on the deliverables on that event. I'm sick of spending that money, whatever it may be. No, we're not going to expand that program. We can't hire that person. All that hard work. I want the CFO to tell me we have a budget that I'm comfortable with. This is what I need from you. I need you to raise $100,000 more. I need you to raise $2 million more, whatever it is. And then I tell them that is not possible. And so, (laughs) and so we negotiate, this is what I think is possible. I will tell you every source of income I think that comes from and the likelihood of that coming in, even if the board's telling the CFO, I want this, I will tell them that is not possible, but this is possible. And so we need to tell the board together that this is possible, but not that. Unless the board can match you and say, I will make it possible. I will get this person in and that person in. So they're my chief negotiators. They're the ones that help me understand the realistic outlook for the organization financially. And then we will together go back and develop a plan for the board to get behind and to understand and to be supportive of the staff and the leadership. And we also protect the executive director or the CEO in that way too. Leadership will say all kinds of things to the staff. I like the CFO to be my partner and just countering with reality yep. and ambition. You can be realistic and ambitious at the same time.
0: Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more with everything that you just said. And I also just think, you know, our job is to effectively manage the inflows and the outflows. And so if we know that there's going to be a problem with the inflows, we can help mitigate that because we're effectively managing the outflows to your point about making sure that the organization is fiscally sound and healthy. The more that we understand what's going on on your end, the more we can mitigate on the other side of the equation on our end. And I think there's real power in that. That absolutely, and
1: it avoids crises because I've had it where the CFO has been like, alert, we're out of cash in two months and if that is that's not a healthy partnership Absolutely. where you have to be able to tell me okay i'm concerned with cash flow 6 months in advance mm-hmm. a year in advance whatever it may be and you never want to fundraise from a deficit you never want to say oh my gosh we're going to run out of money can you support us the reality is i want to fundraise to grow our programs to do more to do better to enhance So yes, I totally agree with that. The ideal situation is the CFO and I and the CEO and the board have gotten the organization to a healthy place and those crises don't happen. But the reality is that partnership starts at a point of here are the problems, here are the cash flow issues, here are the things we need to do to make sure this organization is stable and healthy.
0: Quite a bit has changed, well, just in the market and in the world over the course of the past two and a half years. And now that we're entering this new phase and we have high inflation and the markets are crazy and all over the place, I think the fundraising landscape has drastically changed. So I would very much just appreciate your general views on what you're seeing, what your clients are seeing, what you're getting called in to help fix. The fundraising landscape has changed. When you are fundraising
1: in the midst of a lot of stimulus, a raging market, meaning bull, and everybody's feeling pretty good about their earnings. Fundraising is a lot easier. I have been through the downturn of 9-11. I've been through the economic downturn of 2008. I've been through a global pandemic. And now I've been through this massive inflation and recovery moment and the pattern is beginning to reveal itself, you can get through these more difficult times with the golden rule of fundraising, which is focus on building relationships and bring it back to the people that truly, truly connect with your mission and want to see the problem that you are trying to solve, solved. So in the midst of those good times, when the money is much more easy to find and bring in, there is a difference. When those times are happening, you have to still focus on relationship building because it's always gonna turn. It's just the way the world, it goes up, it goes down. It goes up and goes down. If you're concentrating on relationship building throughout and always really thinking about the people who truly want your mission to be achieved, then you are ready for these harder more difficult times, and can call on those people with the messaging, the requests, the urgency that you need to.
0: What are some of the trends you're seeing right now from a giving perspective?
1: There are a couple of difficult things that nonprofits are facing. First of all, they have taken, from what I'm seeing, a two-year break from in-person cultivation. So there is an urgent need to reconnect face-to-face with your donors. And so people are hustling and trying to do events again. They are difficult things to do. They are not the most fun part of the work. Could you imagine if you were organizing your wedding every year for years and years, how stressful that is? Events are stressful for your team. They're stressful for all your volunteers. They can be very beautiful in the end and they're critical to relationship building and people seem to need them. If anything, the pandemic has reinforced the fact that people need people and they are social and they need to connect. So the hustle is coming back to, oh, gosh, we need to reconnect with our donors in person. We need to see them. We need to show them what we're doing. You know, people start to ignore the Zooms. They start to ignore the emails. So whatever they can do to get back in person, there's an
0: urgency on that. It so resonates with me. I planned a 5K many years ago for an organization that I had worked closely with. It was horrendous. And I'm in the process (laughs) of planning my son's bar mitzvah is next month. And it is horrible.
1: It is. I don't like this. It is. It's just a fact of life. People get very connected to the event and it becomes very personal.
0: It does become very personal. Every aspect. It's craziness.
1: You go to a nonprofit event, just realize that everybody in that room has been kicked around for about three or four months. So
0: be kind and generous when you walk in the doors. I can see that the Zoom can just take you so far in fundraising, not having that personal touch, those personal conversations. I suspect it does start to catch up with you at a certain point. Absolutely. Yep. Yep.
1: So the other thing that people are really struggling with and have been for years now is just the competing crisis. Every single month, it's another absolutely urgent issue. They can't do anything about that, but it is something they are constantly negotiating, meaning leadership. So in May, it's gun violence. In June, it's the climate. In August, it's Ukraine, it's one thing after another, it's people starving, it's people dying of the pandemic, it's this, it's that, it's one disaster after another, and people don't see what I see, which is really amazing work being done. The news doesn't cover all the innovation, all the hard work, and all the wonderful people coming up in the pipeline trying to make change that doesn't get covered as much you know so i see hope every day every time there's a crisis people rally around the crisis and they ignore all the other missions that they care about to help with that crisis and then that fades and so if you are in the reproductive rights space right now people are concerned yep what are they going to be concerned in six months No, they don't seem to have that ability to focus. You know, last year was Afghanistan. So everybody cared about Afghanistan. And this is just natural human behavior. So then your fundraising strategy has to account for the next crisis, the next thing that's going to
0: take people's attention away from you and your mission. What would you tell a reproductive rights organization to do in this moment where there is actually a massive fundraising Mm -hmm. opportunity?
1: Yeah. So you capitalize on it now. You do everything that you can to raise money now. But at the same time, you have to have the strategy for how to build the relationships with those new donors, which is sharing a lot of gratitude, sharing a lot of good news. You have to remember that as a nonprofit, people only want to join winning efforts. So You have to reinforce over and over again that you are being effective with what they have invested in you. So a new donor came in because they're very concerned with the state of the world. So then you show gratitude whenever you can or whatever strategy you come up with, individual acknowledgement. You can't do that with 10,000, but you can have a system that individually responds to that person right away and says, Amy, thank you so much. You don't know how important that is right now. And I appreciate you taking the time and your precious funds to support our mission. And then you know that Amy is new. So every quarter, anything that works for your particular organization, you share with Amy, you know, the progress that is being made, the good news and the bad news, the urgency and the progress. Those are the things that you should keep in mind. Um, And so you try to build a relationship and there are layers to that. There's the people that are the masses, you know, all the many, many small donors. Then there's the folks that are actively volunteering. You have to harness all their energies. You have to appreciate all their energies and you have to cultivate them like you do every other relationship in your life. You cultivate, you cultivate relationships with your kids, teachers, you cultivate relationships with your plumber. You cultivate relationships with your mother and your mother-in-law and your sister-in-law and your cousins, you know what I mean? You are constantly cultivating relationships. It's the same thing when it comes to people who are investing in your mission. You know, you build relationships, you cultivate them, you make sure that they're right for you and you are right for them. And it's that constant relationship building that makes for a strong fundraising plan.
0: Where where do you see potential areas of growth at this point? Do you see it in individual giving, foundations, government? Where are the opportunities? I think
1: the opportunities are always an individual because all those are connected to individuals. So it's really about cultivating individuals. And that means diverse individuals. That means individuals that have access to diverse networks and inns. There are opportunities in all those arenas. You know, it depends on what you're doing. You know, it depends on if it's an issue the government is supporting, economic activity and empowerment is huge right now for them. Climate, right? Infrastructure. So it depends on what you do. But individuals will always help you get to the point where those avenues open. I work with the little guy a lot, the nonprofit that is small to mid-size range. So I work with big guys too, but I feel it's important to also work with the small mid-range guys because they have a harder time. It's harder to fundraise for them. So when I say individuals are critical, I don't mean that if you don't have the individuals, you're done. Because I think that is always the fear is that I don't have connection. We're never going to fundraise from this source or that source. That's not the case. It's just that you always need to be cultivating, growing your team of supporters, your network of supporters, because without a doubt, that will open new doors. So there are foundations that respond to your inquiries, to your proposals, and they are committed to do that because they don't know the smaller guys and the middle size guides, and they don't want to just support the folks that they have relationships with. That is not their mission. Their mission is to solve solutions. And that is the right train of thought, especially in the corporate world. You can't blind ask corporations. They have a million different priorities. They have clients to make happy, customers to make happy, neighborhoods to make happy, communities to make happy, bosses to make happy, executives to make happy, stockholders or investors, whatever it may be. So all of those people are ahead of you as far as your blind ask. So you need to make sure that you have relationships that are those people who will ask for support for your mission because everybody cares about something. And so you have to find the people that care about what you're doing.
0: I serve the same market effectively that you do. So the majority of our clients are small to mid-sized nonprofit organizations. And I would say 15 to 20% of my client base is almost exclusively government funded which from an accounting perspective is horrible uh-huh. <laughs> um and from just from a the management of that which i'm uh-huh. sure you know managing the invoicing and the reimbursement we released a podcast in early september about managing restricted grants and just how it's really hard uh, from an administrative perspective, but it's almost impossible from a cash flow perspective, especially if the grants are reimbursement-based because you're always behind. I have some clients who need to lay out the cash and aren't reimbursed for a year. Mm -hmm. All of these groups want to cultivate relationships and build an individual giving platform. And it's, it's silly to say, start from scratch. These are organizations that have been around for like 30, 40, 50, a hundred years and they're multimillion dollar budgets, but they don't have really any individual donor base. Like, what would you say to these folks?
1: I would say you start with who you have. So they literally have to go and identify every single individual who has contributed to their organization. Who are your staff members? Who are your board members? And who are your volunteers? And who has given to you, if anybody? And they literally have to be committed to expanding that pool every year. The folks that you have now are going to get tired. They can't sustain your organization. You bring in new people because they will have the passion and the energy for a few years and they can't go on forever either. So you have to just think like a human, you can do something for so long. And then you have to move on because your interests change, your passion changes, your energy changes. So, you know, you start with that core group and you are committed to every single year bringing in from that network, a friend, a neighbor, a church, a temple, you are presenting, you are recruiting, you are bringing people in and you are cultivating those new relationships and you are bringing in 10 new people a year. From those 10 new people, they will have the same commitment. You have to actively work on that strategy. That means if the 10 new people come in, you have a plan for each of those 10 people to bring in three new people. And so it multiplies. With that kind of focus, if every person brings in three new people over so-and-so many years, now you have an army of supporters. Now you have a team. And then from that, you are constantly cultivating and that's how things grow.
0: Okay. Have you seen a decline in individual giving over the course of the past six to 12 months? I worked with a lot of different organizations, so I see
1: different things. Right. So yes, I would say that as soon as the markets go down, People tighten their purses, they tighten their wallets, you know. So it's just as a donor, something to consider that you need to think always on consistency for the missions that you care about. Be careful how you cut back when things get harder, because you are hurting some of the causes you care the most about. And if you don't think about that, then the ramifications of that Nonprofit work, that community work being lessened over the years, they show up in our everyday life all the time. So, if we drop the ball on climate change, then there are ramifications to that affect our daily life. If we drop the ball on reproductive rights, there are ramifications to that. So, you have to think about when times get rough, how you cut back. People need to give to the missions that they care about. They need to think about that. They need to set up their reoccurring donations. They need to make sure that just like you're giving to your religious institution and your school and you're taking care of them, that you're taking care of whatever the mission that you care most about is, that you are also taking care of them too. So certain kinds of giving are built into our weekly lives. Well, then how do we get that kind of giving into the weekly life of the missions that we care so much about?
0: I can tell you from personal experience that the organizations that we work with, the minute the pandemic hit, it was very clear to us who was going to be okay and who wasn't. And I would argue the one thing that all of the organizations that we deemed were going to be okay were those that had multiple different revenue streams. So, for example, we work with organizations that provide yoga as a therapeutic form of support for veterans and whomever. And so like a huge chunk of their revenue came from programs in hospitals that I think to this day are still not back up and running, but those were shut off like literally overnight. However, because the organization also does a big fundraiser and they have foundation funding and they have a huge individual giving platform, they were actually very quickly able to pivot and focus more on other areas, repurpose grants and do all of these things because they weren't just pulling from one pool of revenue. How does revenue diversification play into development stability to begin with?
1: It's the whole thing. So in the 20 years of doing this work, I've now seen every single bucket of revenue source diminish. So sometimes administrations change and the government goes. Then you have the corporate, you know, the stock market plummets or sales plummet and the corporate goes. The foundations go with the stock market. The same sort of source gets hit when there's an economic downturn individuals are the most reliable because like I said, you can call them up and say, times are hard. Please don't give up on us now. We need you to stick with us. If it's a reduced amount, I understand, but don't let us go in this time. We need you. So you can appeal to a person rather than a corporate policy, you know? So wherever you can appeal to a person is where you want to make sure you have the strength. And then earned income was always my favorite. I love earned income because it's not relying on charity. You know, it's relying on business exchange, which you can have a lot of fun with and rely on in different times. However, that got nailed during the pandemic. So you can't even rely on that. People were selling things, manufacturing things, doing all kinds of things. And it was the first source of income that I saw with some clients that went out the door because people couldn't show up safely and make the product, do the product, sell the product, show up to things. And so no source is completely foolproof. You must have all the burners going. You must seek and think about all the different sources and cultivate every one of them and do it as evenly handed with the idea that individuals will always bail you out one way or another. As long as you understand that relationships reign supreme, then you can weather the storms. A little bit better because the storms are coming.
0: That's that, that we know for sure. The storms will always come. I'm seeing it firsthand right now too. I'm having to get creative with quite a few of our clients just from an expense mitigation. Like how do we help mitigate what we're seeing now starting to slowly happen on the revenue side? So maybe just my final question to you is just some final thoughts, maybe two to three points or pieces of advice that you would give to a nonprofit that's struggling to raise money. Just a couple quick tips.
1: It's very individual to the nonprofit and their particular challenge. So keep that in mind when Fair I say enough. things. But, you know, identify your most reliable sources of income and cultivate them. See how you can bring in and make compelling asks. So is that your end of year appeal? Uh, maybe your end of year appeal to your 150 donors goes really well or your annual appeal to 250,000 donors goes really well. So double down on it. Do whatever you can to make it bigger and more special this year. You know, whether that is a stronger online appeal more follow-up people making phone calls to follow up telling people how wonderful they've been in the past how much you need them you know all the little tricks people do to get people to recognize their annual appeal and give you know a lot of these days people like to see things in the mail they like to have face to face that's what sets you apart don't just rely on electronic exchange it's not good enough so that's a uh, another thing I would keep in mind is that whatever you can to connect with people in person face to face one on one do it. And think about the future. These times are hard, but always think about how you can build for the future and that is through people and bringing people into your cause.
0: This has been great Stephanie. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, I enjoyed it so much. I enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for having
0: me. Amy. Thank you for listening to The Balance. I'm your host, Amy Carson. You can learn more about our company, Brand K Partners, and what we do at brandkpartners.com. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Racecar. And this episode was produced by David Hoffman, post-production by Alex Brouwer, and production managed by Gabriella Montekin. If you like the show, never miss an episode by subscribing on all your favorite podcast apps. And please leave a rating and a review. See you next time.